This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Home Depot has holiday savings of up to 40% on select appliances, like a Whirlpool four-door French door refrigerator for just $15.98. It's perfect for a busy kitchen full of helping hands. That's where its fingerprint-resistant stainless steel finish really shines. Order online and get free delivery. Holiday appliance shopping improved. Up to 40% off select appliances. Now at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Continental U.S. only. While supplies last. Valid through December 2nd. Free delivery on orders $396 or more. Want to hear something amazing? Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year. Automatically. Dollar for dollar. With no limit on how much you can earn. Extra cash? Come on, how amazing is that? In fact, it's even more amazing when you realize all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash yes. 2020 Nielsen Report limitations apply. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to you. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm Earl Sampson Folk, and today joining me for maybe the fifth time or the fourth time on the Raptors Weekly Podcast, more times elsewhere, but Anthony Doyle, my colleague over at Raptors Republic, great writer, wonderful thinker, and glad to have you on. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good. It's, basketball's fun right now, so it's easy to be enjoying the league. Is there anything outside of basketball that you've been enjoying lately we've uh, well i'm in Yellowknife, and we've had like i think 30 centimeters of snow in the last couple days so i've been doing a lot of shoveling snow aside from basketball that sounds fun <laughs> question I, I know that's probably a little bit different than what you've had in mexico it is it seems like the antithesis the polar opposite of what i've had in mexico to be honest <laughs> but i do i do remember Maybe somewhat fondly, the uh, snow shoveling of my youth and growing up. I'd, I had a FaceTime conversation with my dad yesterday, and he lives in Sturgis, Saskatchewan, where I'm from. And he actually showed me our front porch and the front yard and the driveway, the driveway where I used to play basketball, and it was all covered in snow. And I was a little bit swept with nostalgia. It was it was cool to see because I haven't experienced snow in a little in a little bit of time. And home always seems to have that kind of effect on me. Do you have Do you have anything that always gets you in the nostalgia feels? Anything like that? Well, I, I grew up up here, so not really. But like when I um, went away to college, I went, went down to Lethbridge like in those years. And the three years I spent in Lethbridge, I think we had one Christmas with snow. And the two years where the snow melted right around Christmas time and it, it was like green outside and bright and sunny. That really threw me. Cause like living up in Yellowknife most of my life, I'm just so used to, you know, cold snowy Christmases. That's, 
that's how I view this time of year. And so I can definitely understand how not having that would be weird and, you know, make you miss it a little bit. Even it if is. even if I live on the other extreme. Yeah, it is a little bit vexing. When you went to, you said Lethbridge, did you like it down there? I didn't mind Lethbridge. Um, I didn't, I wasn't a big fan of the unpredictability of the weather in southern Alberta, mm-hmm. per- personally. Because, like, Yellowknife, for all its faults, we kind of know it's going to be cold in the winter. It's going to be bright and sunny in the summer. And, and you sort of know how to plan for that. And Lethbridge was like, I was there for three years. We had snow 12 months of the year. Um, we had green Christmases. It was just like every day was an adventure with the weather. And I wasn't really a big fan of that. Yeah. That makes sense. I went to Lethbridge once, and it was for an ID camp for, I can't remember if they're called something, the Rattlers. What's the the team called for Lethbridge's um, uh, college or university? The Lethbridge University. Um, I should know this. Yeah. <laughs> what are uh, I, I, boy, I can't remember now. I, like, I spent lots of time watching the Lethbridge Hurricanes in the WHL when I was there. Right. Um, what is their university team name? The yeah, Horns. I, it's the yeah. Horns. Horns. There you go. And so I was there for like a day and a half. I stayed in a, a hotel there. But we went downtown for a short amount of time. There was like one cobblestone street. So I was intrigued by that. And I thought it was quite cosmopolitan because i grew up in small town saskatchewan obviously my horizons have grown since then but yeah that's that's what i thought of lethbridge lethbridge is a really weird town because there's basically two main populations in in lethbridge and it's like half college and university students and then half retirees and there's not much outside of those two population groups that creates a really odd town yeah, it would, because it's half college town, half, I guess, uh, pension town, which yeah. is, those are, those seem diametrically opposed. There's a lot of difference there. So, yeah, it was, it was different. I mean, it's also the biggest city I've ever lived in, and it's only 50,000 people, so I've, I've never lived in a big city myself, personally. Mm. Well, how big is Yellowknife? It's about 20,000 people. 20,000. And what's, what is the best thing to do there, by the way? I always say, like, if you're, a, if you're coming up just to see the town, come up in the winter, do the dog sledding, do the, um, you know, if you come up in January or February, there's the uh, Ice Kings, there's, there's a sculpted castle out of ice down on Great Slave Lake. You can see the northern lights, drive the ice road, things like that. Because there's a lot more unique things to see up here in the winter. And uh, it's, it is very different. And dog sledding's fun. You just kind of have to deal with the fact that it's going to be cold and bundle up around that. But we, have, we do a lot of, like, there's a lot of tourism up here around the Northern Lights. Yeah, I was going to say, do you take them for granted because you get to see them so often? And I have a friend down here, um, Beto, he's from Peru. And he is enchanted with the Northern Lights, and that is he wants to see them before he dies. And it's, he is so taken with them. But you get to see them quite often, I assume. I mean, we, we see them in some form quite often. Um, 
but you don't like I don't think you would ever take the best Northern Lights Knights for granted because it's just it's really spectacular when they're at their best. Um and like you get nights where you get the whole sky is lit up in different colors and they dance and it's just it's incredible to see. I, I don't even know how to completely describe that experience, so I don't think that would ever get old, or at least it hasn't for me. That makes sense. I've only seen it in kind of small a smaller capacity, like a summer night at a northern lake in Saskatchewan. So you see a little part of the sky, you see a little bit of green, see a little like stripe of orange running through it, something like that. But I've never seen like what you described and I suppose that's something I should see as well, definitely before I I kick the bucket. What do you think? <laughs> I I think it's totally worth it. Yeah, everybody kind of thinks of the Northern Lights in terms of like the green and the colors that are in that area like in that area of the rainbow, but when you get the really good nights, it's blues and purples. Like, it's... The whole sky's lit up, and it's something entirely different, and it's something I'm... I'm glad I've had the ability to experience in my life. No kidding. Imagine being in an older... Like, going back however many years, not having a, a scientific explanation, and all of a sudden <laughs> the sky is doing that. I can't even imagine what that did to the the locals at the time. My goodness. It's definitely a huge part of local folklore. Yeah, I remember reading about that. and It was limited growing up, but you get some, whether First Nations or Indigenous studies, and uh, you get to hear about some of the folklore and the, I don't know if religious is the right word to use to describe the tales, but um, it, it was cool hearing about that and the, the origins of that. So that I always like those stories a lot, and it, it's cool to see where it comes from. And it's cool that you're there. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I, I definitely, growing up as a teenager in Yellowknife, I didn't like it. And I always told myself when I moved away, I would never come back to Yellowknife. I will definitely be leaving Yellowknife at some point in the future, but I've also kind of grown to appreciate some parts of it. You know, it's such a unique place. It, it has its benefits to it as well, being in a, in a place like this. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I, I have enjoyed the Yellowknife conversation, but I, I suppose we'll move the, the podcast on to some basketball. And there was a, I thought, an, a very interesting article written by Samuel Hunter. He writes at Raptors Republic, just like Anthony and I. And it, it was called Labor and Power, and it was about LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, guys like that, using their gravitas, their power within the league to transcend labor in some ways but in others that they were still stuck as laborers. And at the end, the takeaway seems to be that empower load management, empower a shorter schedule, empower all these things that are pro-player, but also with the caveat that players haven't pushed for that stuff as hard because it affects their bottom line as well. And I'm going to ask you a very tough question here, Anthony. What is the happy medium to you? In that, in that situation, because the players, obviously, they want to get the bag. It, because, of course, they would, and good for them for trying. The owners want to get as much money as possible as well. Both parties want that. So more games, more revenue, things of that nature. And the players, if some of them do get load management, and there is kind of this notion league-wide that 
you don't have to play to your full capabilities every game for the 82-game season. Some nights you can take a little break, and that seems to be we. that's just slid into how we take in regular season basketball. Sometimes your team won't have it. So how do the players go forward knowing some nights maybe they can take a little bit off, but they still get the full 82-game payout, which is fine. And how do they like how you you know what I'm saying I'm sure yeah. and what do you think is the fix or the how do you improve this situation going forward? I this is complicated to me because I I understand that you know when you're a fan and you buy a ticket to the game, if you buy a ticket to a Clippers game, you're hoping to see Kawhi and Paul George. You know if you go to a Lakers game, you're hoping to see LeBron and AD. And you are a little bit disappointed in what you're getting if you aren't seeing those players. But at the same time, like that doesn't that also kind of underscores the point there that the players are the product. You're not paying because, you know, the bus family owns the Lakers. That's or Steve Ballmer owns the Clippers. That's not why you're going to the games. You're going because of the players who are on the court. So to me, I'll always support the players in these discussions because to me they're the ones who drive everything forward in the league. At the same time, the load management discussion to me, in a way, we've gone a little bit off course with it because I always think like there's a part that has to be brought into this, especially when it comes to Kawhi, and it's all been so Kawhi-centric this year, that he's also not a healthy player. <laughs> right, totally. And we, you know, when you talk about ESPN and them talking about him not playing in a nationally televised game, which was the big story last week. You, ha- you have to keep in mind, ESPN is also talking about their money there. Because for them, if Kawhi doesn't play, TV ratings go down. That costs ESPN some money. But also, Kawhi's responsibility isn't just to the Clippers. His responsibility is also to himself and to his family. And that's, you know, his. we don't know all of the details of his knee injury. There's probably a lot more that we don't know than that we ever will about what's going on with his knee. But what we do know is there was back with the Spurs when the rift originally started between his camp and the Spurs, it was referred to as a degenerative condition in the knee. We know it cost him a whole season. We know that the Raptors were concerned enough about it last season that they sat him for a large number of games and that it even impacted him into the playoffs because There were points during the playoffs where the narrative around the Raptors was their playoff run was done because Kawhi didn't have it anymore because he was playing hurt. And then we also know that going forward into this season, the Clippers came in with the notion that they weren't going to be load managing him. And then as the games went on, he slowed down and they backed off that stance into he's not playing back-to-backs. So I think there's an indication here that as much as I, I do find the labor discussion interesting, and I, I'm definitely interested in talking about that part of it, also with Kawhi, this is about a player who probably will never be healthy, and this is about injury management as much as load management, but load management was an easier way to say it because teams don't want to talk about the specifics of the injury. Actually, yeah, that is... I said load management because that's how Samuel phrases it in the in the piece, but you saying that, that makes complete sense to me is that not only is it not a league-wide phenomenon it's like you said very Kawhi centric 
And it is kind of funny that all of a sudden it is Kawhi-centric, even though this was happening in Toronto last year. And now it's a big deal. But anyway, I, I digress on that part. But it is not a league-wide phenomenon. You're correct there. It's Kawhi-centric. You're correct there. And whether it's degenerative, whatever's going on with his knee, you're correct there because, well, obviously they've come out and said it, but his situation is far different than any other player. And so injury management is definitely, I agree with that too, that is the word to use, not load management. The conflation of the two seems to be, it it brings the conversation back to somewhere where it doesn't belong and a conversation where you probably took us away from, which is a good thing. Yeah. And so regarding the Kawhi part of it, yes, I agree with that wholeheartedly. So let's table that part then and let's move on to the labor, which I think is... The Kawhi thing isn't so interesting as far as his health, and if you figure that out, then that's interesting. But as far as the kind of mystery around it, not so interesting. I think he's just a hurt guy, like you said. And so the labor part of it, the the most interesting conversation I think you can have is that they're very, very high-paid labor, and they are also very close to being like, talent like a rock star but taking away from that is that they are salaried and they do have bosses like the bus family and there is a coach there things like that so where do you think the the line is drawn between talent and labor for nba players how close are they to falling on either side i definitely think of them as labor personally because i think their relationship with the league is very much a labor ownership relationship in a lot of ways. And when you look at it historically and how that's evolved, I mean, we think of it now in terms of the players nowadays where you have like LeBron is probably a billionaire. We don't know. Maybe he's not yet, but he'll be there soon. And so we think of these players as incredibly rich entities because that's what they've become. But we don't tend to put that into perspective of the history of professional sports and how all of these things were hard fought along the way. You know, we aren't that far removed from professional athletes that had to have summer jobs to pay the bills. And so I think with when we talk about labor relationships, we also have to keep in mind the historical context of them and the fact that the NBA Players Association is still fighting for some of those rights. It was only the last collective bargaining agreement where the players grandfathered in health care for all former players. And from a labor perspective, that's a big deal because some of those athletes who have retired and are now in their older years didn't make a lot during their career. And we also have to keep in mind that being a professional athlete is really hard on your body and it does take a toll later in life. So I think when you keep all of those things in mind, you definitely see that players are labor and that they have worked really hard for all of these rights. And we can't, we can't talk about the, the relationship there without being cognizant of those things and being cognizant of the fact that none of those things that they earned along the way were given freely. All of those things had a cost to them. Yeah, they well, they definitely did. And I guess that is a great way to frame the conversation is to not think of it as just we're now here in these past five years, but this has been a developing trend in the NBA for some time now, 
where the NBA was almost bankrupt at one point, even in even in its existence. And now to, to where we are now, where LeBron James has a billion dollar contract with Nike. So at some point we'll guarantee he'd be a billionaire. Don't know when, like you said, it, it comes soon, I'm sure. Kobe Bryant, I looked at his net worth yesterday, supposed to be 500 million. Some players are making 200 million on like over, I guess, six, seven years on contracts. There's a lot of money going around now. So it's hard to view them as labor. And the way that the celebrity has been meshed in as well, I guess that's why I brought up talent and rock stars and things like that, rappers, whoever's performers. So there, there seems to be like a little bit of a tie there, but it hasn't been that way for that long. So I think you're correct in saying that. And, you know, I, I don't have any outstanding takes on this. I just, uh, I kind of uh, wanted to bounce it off of you. Uh, also, I would add that our fan expectations of players and what they do is very much the expectations of what we would have of labor. Because, like, when you think about a musician or an actor, we kind of laugh off their bad performances. And, like, you know, you hear about a musician canceling a concert, you just kind of laugh it off. The, we expect professional athletes to be on the level of we, that we expect from, you know, the labor when you go into a restaurant or when you go into a store. We expect the same thing from them. We expect their best all the time. And if that's our fan expectation, then we are also treating them like labor. So you're saying that you and I, taking in a, a tough Pascal Siakam game and saying, guys, it's fine. They're, you're saying that not every fan is Sean Woodley, that most fans are angry when players play bad. That's what you're telling me. That is definitely what my Twitter feed would suggest during some of those games. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> well, I, did, I did say beforehand that there is this assumed, uh, I guess, fan level of expectation where they know it's not going to happen every game. But that's the, the macro take. I think sometimes there's this view in media. They're like, well, they're not going to have it for 82 games. Coaches talk about it. But I think you're right in bringing up that when you're at the restaurant, like if you ask somebody, hey, do you expect every restaurant you ever go to to give you the best meal ever, the best they have? You'd say, well, that's a little bit. I don't think I'd get that at every restaurant ever. But if they're at the restaurant right then, whereas if the, the fans are watching the game that night, and you say, is it okay if it's not that great tonight? You say, no, they should do their best, and it should be a certain level. I think that's uh, yep. the and proper that's, way to look at it. And that's what people say when you, know, when you turn on a basketball game. And there's some aspects of how we view the NBA here that definitely need to be analyzed, and we should, you know, we should be better about how we, we treat this stuff. But you turn on a basketball game, and a guy has a bad game, you're going to hear somebody on the radio the next day probably talking about, well, that player has to be better. And it's just like, we don't have the full glimpse of these guys' lives. There are a lot of things that go into the day-to-day -day that we don't have the full glimpse of, and a lot of things that can contribute to them having a rough day. Just like for me and you, there are things that can contribute to us having bad days at work that we don't share with every customer. The mixing of really high-level salary with really high-level publicization. It has made it such a murky type of conversation. But you've made some great points, I think. 
that seem to cut through clear in that, yes, this is labor. I know some of the listeners will probably disagree. The With Samuel's article, I think that a lot of the responses were in disagreements or disagreement, and that's, that's okay. I think that this conversation, this discourse, will have a lot of disagreements because not only is it at the heart of the NBA conversation, but at the heart of the cultural conversation right now, where you see a lot of younger people now, maybe not directly Marxist, but certainly there is a socialist movement, especially with younger people, and maybe some of the the old guard or middle-aged people, even people who are, you know, 30 and above, there there are still capitalist roots. And I'm not going to make the, I'm not going to have us have the conversation and parse out capitalism versus communism or socialism, Marxism, whatever it might be right now. But it definitely, I think, pertains to the conversation about labor in the NBA and the wider cultural conversation. It's it's a hot topic right now. Yeah, I obviously anybody who's ever looked at my Twitter feed knows that I lean relatively left on a lot of these conversations. And it's hard when you mix professional athletes into it because often when we're talking about the problems with you know wealth and inequality in the world, we're talking about you know billionaires and the concentration of wealth at the top. And professional athletes are kind of moving in the direction of being in that top small group of extremely wealthy people because they're making that kind of money. But every professional athlete is also paid by an owner who has way more money than that. (laughs) And that, you know, they're still in the hierarchy. They are still not at the top row. And so that's sort of where we talk when we talk about these things. But then it's hard for somebody who you know, is working a union job where they're making near minimum wage to view their union relationship as the same as LeBron's relationship with his union, even if there are his, is historical context that makes it somewhat comparable. Yeah, that's exactly it. And how does that, I guess, lower earning union worker empathize with LeBron James' situation at all, right? Because yes, there is that solidarity that you are both a labor, but the way your lives look is A, completely different, and B, you aren't, you probably aren't the 0.01% of your profession, so you can't command the type of respect within your profession that LeBron commands within his profession. And then there's the conversation of unionizing, so should that matter? And if the NBA is labor, and if it's close to being union at all, why is there such a disparity between what players can command what? You know what I mean? It's it's a very, very difficult conversation to have. On on the, the outside, you can say, yes, it's this. And I do agree with most of what you said, probably all of what you said. But to get to the heart of it and fully figure everything out and to get the the average fan to empathize with that and to understand, you know what, I paid for these tickets. He's not here. He's the same as me. He's going to have the same difficulties as me. On the outside, yes, but also in lifestyle, no. And we live for our lifestyle. Where the conversation does get similar is when we talk about, you know, what workers should earn in the broader scheme of, you know, talking about capitalism versus socialism. A lot of people talk about, you know, earned wages versus shareholder profit. And that is a very relatable thing to the NBA. Because, you know, if you look at 
workers in a factory, and the corporate the profits that the factory makes are distributed to the corporate shareholders, not to the workers. So if, if you work at a factory, that factory increases their production massively, increases their profit margin massively, chances are you're going to see almost none of that. You might see a small bump, you might see a, bo- a small bonus, but you're not going to see the effects of it overall. The shareholders are going to get that. It, in a large way, it's the same way with the NBA. I mean, they get a percentage of basketball-related revenue, but it's only currently, is it 51% or 57% right now? Um, I don't think it's as high as 57. I think 51. Yeah, so they're still they're still only getting about half of the earnings, and the players are all of the product. <laughs> Nobody goes to an NBA game for any reason except to see the players. So, in a way, it's there is a at the heart of it. There's a similar conversation there, which is what happens to the rest of the money. Well, also, I think the most interesting thing part of the cultural conversation and this specific NBA centric one is that some places because when you're talking about the shareholders or the owners getting more money, you talk about the risk involved in the investment, of course, but some places have little to no risk in investment. If you invest in an NBA team at this point, your money is going up. It's like some businesses print money for you. And there's little to no risk involved. So should the compensation, should that be factored in, right? Because the NBA is such a reliable thing. And the players bring such a great product that is consumed so much. And it just keeps being built upon and built upon. Should people be compensated for a level of risk that isn't really there anymore, right? Well, yeah. Let's talk about the New York Knicks. (laughs) One of the most valuable... exactly. One of the most most valuable franchises in professional sports. They haven't been competitive in a long time, uh, uh, depending on how you feel about that, like, one to two good years with Carmelo Anthony. 57 wins, man. They were so close. They almost won it all. (laughs) But aside from that, they just haven't been competitive. And I'm sure James Dolan is making a lot of money off the Knicks because people continue to go to Madison Square Gardens. People continue to buy Knicks merchandise. And you could, like, the Knicks name makes money. It's the same thing with the Lakers. They were bad for the last seven years. They're good this year, but they went through a considerable bad stretch. And they still were one of the most expensive tickets in the NBA because they're the Lakers. So there isn't a risk in owning the Lakers. You own a team that's going to make money as long as you have to screw up so monumentally to not get that bag well even what screw up and maybe let's have this this is a two-minute conversation i'm sure maybe even shorter because i think the answer is none what screw up genuinely makes it so that you don't get the bag donald sterling made a lot of money the the knicks are a horribly run franchise and that seems to be the consensus of other gms other fans Knicks fans and people within the Knicks organization. So how do you really mess up getting the bag in the NBA as an owner? It doesn't seem possible to actually screw up your money. I honestly don't think you can right now because I think uh, there are still a lot of extremely rich people who would love to get into the NBA and would spend a lot of money to do it. So the end of the day, even if you made a decision where you weren't, where 
you needed money, you can just sell the team. Yeah, that's... And you would make money, because of yeah. course you would, because it's like printing money, because there's little to no risk involved. People know the NBA is a growing brand, things like the, that. It's just, yeah. The net valuation of the NBA keeps going up. It's, yeah, and for good reason. I mean, it's a great product, but, um, yeah. I feel like we've said, not definitively, but we've hit at different points all the points I wanted to hit about this specific conversation. How do you feel about it? I yeah, it's it's such a big conversation. It's really yeah. hard to cover definitively, but I I feel like we've hit most of the major points. At least at least for a, a Raptors podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and and as such, being a Raptors podcast, we're talking about players sometimes not having it, and there there was a sluggishness to Pascal Siakam at times during the road trip, which I think a lot of fans did empathize with, at, at least the ones that you and I interact with, I think, Anthony, a lot of the people on Raptors Republic commenters were okay with it, and there was this understanding of how Pascal Siakam performed a little bit worse. But he has been a little bit less so than he was at the start of the year. I know he had the 44-point game. He played really well against the Pelicans as well. But there were a couple letdowns in that, you know, Maxi Kleber should not be locking Siakam down. But he, there's some fatigue to that. How this is going to keep happening throughout the year, obviously. He has a large load to carry. He's not going to be load managed. Nothing like that is coming into the conversation. Pascal Siakam is going to have to grind away this year, as is that's just the way the Raptors are constructed. How does Nick Nurse, from what you've seen, start implementing manufacturing easier baskets or looks for Pascal Siakam? Because it seems like a lot of what we're seeing is him getting at at the top of the key and trying to clear everybody out. And at the start of the year, that seemed to work when he was fresh. Right now, those seem like fruitless endeavors. They seem to end with short jump shots or leaning like floaters away from the basket that he's not hitting at the same percentage that he hit them last year. What do you think? I think this was kind of something that was talked about a lot at the outset of this Raptors season is something that might be a problem is the fact that they don't have a lot of shot creators. And, you know, Fred Van Vliet has filled in really well for Kyle Lowry, but at the end of the day, he's not... He's better as a combo guard beside another point guard than he is as a point guard. Marc Gasol has... He, he's still a great playmaker, but he's not an offensive system unto himself like he was earlier in his career. And aside from that, there just isn't a lot. Terrence Davis is coming along. They miss Kyle Lowry. And because they miss Kyle Lowry, that has really fallen on Pascal Siakam to be the guy who is the Raptors' offense. And we tend to forget that he's still a guy who's kind of adjusting to this usage, too. I mean, we're still 13 games into him being a number one option. And so he's not just having to do that, not just what he had to do earlier in the season where he's the guy that runs the majority of the usage through him. But now also he's, you know, your backup point guard, really, because when Fred Van Vliet gets his couple minutes of rest, it's Pascal Siakam running the offense. He's kind of a backup center sometimes because Chris Boucher, as hard as he's trying, is still stick thin and 
struggles a lot with some of that. And Siakam's also been asked to pick up a lot in the rebounding game, whether that's getting the rebounds himself or finding bodies to back box out. That's been an issue too. I just think it's a lot to ask of a guy. And I think right now what the Raptors need to do is they need to say, what do we, what do we need Siakam to do that nobody else can replace? And what is Siakam being asked to do right now that maybe we can find another way to, to do? Whether that's giving him an easier defensive assignment sometimes, which would help because it would let him conserve some energy there. Having other guys pick up some of the slack on the, on the rebounding so that he can conserve some energy there. If you can't get him minutes where he's not on the floor, you have to find a way to make some of the minutes that he is on the floor a little bit easier. Yeah, I think that's the perfect way to, to phrase it is, what does he do that can't be replicated? And what is he doing that can be replicated? I like that you put it that way. What do you think he's doing that can't be replicated? And what think, is he doing? Yeah, and yeah, you'll answer the question. You know what, you know what it yeah, is. Yeah, I, I think the usage is the one that you really can't replicate. Scoring is going to be hard for the Raptors if it's not going through him and Fred right now. And so until Kyle gets back, he he's going to have to absorb a lot of shots. But like you said earlier, in that Dallas game, there were a lot of tired shots. There was a lot of places where he had a guy who he normally could take and get downhill going towards the rim, and he settled into a jumper because he looked like he didn't want to... He he either didn't have the energy or he didn't want to expend the energy at that moment. And then you settle into these jumpers... And if you're settling for them, they aren't going to be rhythm jumpers. And that's where the problem comes in, and that's where he's missing a lot of them. There's a big difference between... And and they might look the same, but there's a big difference between Siakam going into a pull-up three where he's really feeling his own game. And that was the early game seasons when he was shooting lights out on those pull-ups. And the last couple of games where he's going into a pull-up three because he doesn't want to try to take the hits going to the basket. And I think that's where we're losing a lot of efficiency from him right now. Yeah, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And you can even see with the mechanics of his jumper, the way he swings his right foot into his jump shot, it's so important for just how he builds the, the synergy up leading into his right hand. He really locks in his right side of the body and he keeps that quite square. The left side of his body is leaning towards his right, but his right side is really straight, and he builds his strength from there. And that's why I think he's been able to progress as a shooter so quickly is because he just aligned the right side of his body, and he works on the weight, and he got he shoots the ball pretty straight a lot of the time. A lot of the time, the misses, they're not the side of the rim or anything. They're front rim because he's a, a very straight shooter. And seeing the way he's trying to pull up on guys just the way the space doesn't allow for it. He doesn't always get to swing that right foot all the way forward, and his body doesn't get to go through the normal motion on the way up. Sometimes he's leaning back, and it's really taking away from the kinetic efficiency of his jump shot. So getting him looks where he gets to keep going downhill, and defenders will be on their heels, and then he pulls up for a jump shot, that's the way. And like you alluded to, if he's settling, he's going to be on his heels, which really does affect the, 
the kinetic uh, momentum in his jump shot, and that's I think why we've seen a lot more um, short jumpers. But I I do agree that's he is going to have to eat up shots. Of course, the Raptors have been relying on bench player A, B, and C to give between eight and fourteen points in the games that they're winning, right? Because they've needed Matt Thomas in the Mavericks game to do really well. Boucher against the Clippers and against the Lakers to get 14 or 15. Rondé Hollis-Jefferson against the Blazers. Like, they've needed those guys to do that. But you can't bank on those guys individually each game. It's going to come and go. And so asking Hollis-Jefferson to play a little bit more on the defensive end as far as getting after it on the boards when he's not the primary defender of the opposing team's big scorer, which he has been for a large part, asking Terrence Davis to keep up his rebounding proficiency because I thought he's been really good, things like that. It seems like there isn't a super easy answer to getting Siakam back on track because he is just getting so much work in that I don't know how anybody would sustain it at that at that level. And maybe more miraculously... How has Fred Van Vliet sustained it at, while playing all these minutes, right? I don't I don't understand what Fred Van Vliet's been doing this last week. But, I mean, all of this said with Pascal Siakam, he might come out tonight against Charlotte and drop 50 and look unstoppable doing it because despite these two really rough games against Dallas and against the Clippers, he has shown this season that he has that in him as well. And, like... I just wouldn't put it past him to do it. We're going to have to watch him grow this season. There's going to be some growing pains along the way. I think, you know, going back two seasons, in a lot of ways, this was the thing that DeMar DeRozan made look so easy during the regular season that we kind of forgot how hard it is to do it, which is to absorb a lot of usage on reasonable efficiency on a team that doesn't have a lot of shot creators. We kind of forget that before the bench mob year, the Raptors were that team, the same, kind of the same team they are right now, where you have not a lot of guys who can create a shot, but you can, you know, you can compete defensively every night, and you rely on a guy to create a large amount of offense in a lot of minutes and keep his efficiency reasonable in order to keep the offense afloat. And I'm somebody who was critical of DeMar DeRozan for a lot of years while he was in Toronto, but this is kind of showing what we're seeing with Pascal Siakam, just how difficult what DeRozan did do for the Raptors was. Yeah, that's it's always been so interesting about how high-usage guards really are the shepherds of the lower seeds of the playoffs. It's why DeMar DeRozan, for what it's worth, is not even close to the player that a Joel Embiid or a Carl Anthony Towns is. But depending on who you surround them with, might be like at the same level bringing a team to the playoffs. It's just weird how it works out that high usage guards can really just run the pick and roll to death during the regular season and drag a team to the playoffs. Reggie Jackson has even done it for a year. Like he had a great year with Detroit. Things like that happen. And it's one of the most interesting things about the NBA because DeMar DeRozan is my favorite player of all time. But I recognize why people view him as kind of someone you don't want on your team because how could he possibly raise your ceiling when he's yep. only ever raising your floor? And I love DeMar, but I totally understand why that's the conversation. And I agree with that conversation. And Pascal is definitively a ceiling raiser. 
And we're seeing that he is a floor raiser. But it, I guess we'll see to what degree that is. Speaking of the pick and roll, that's something I'd really like to see them get more creative with with Pascal, though, is uh, using him in more places in the pick and roll with this more limited team. I mean, he can screen for every ball handler on the team, and every guy on the team can screen for him. And it presents all sorts of different looks. The Raptors over the years have at times used Kyle Lowry as a screener because it creates space in different ways. And I'd love to see the Raptors mixing in more of things like have Fred operate as a screener for Pascal and see what that opens up in the defense. Because when Pascal is clearing out, you're also having him operate against a set defense. And a set defense can't make mistakes. But if you can make the defense move, that's when you open up the opportunity for them to make mistakes and give you easier buckets. So I'd like to get Pascal working against a defense that's where you're giving the defense the opportunity to make a mistake. Yeah, I agree with that. And even with that type of stuff, Fred Van Vliet has been dangerous, whether using him as the screener or running Siakam Van Vliet actions. Maybe you get a switch. And the more often Siakam gets switches onto one of Fred Van Vliet's guys, great. But if Siakam, who is not like an Aaron Baines-level screener, but is not a terrible screener, if he's giving Fred Van Vliet the edge and rolling downhill, it's always good to involve your two best players in a play type. At least right now, they're the two best players. And I just think we haven't seen as much of that as we should be seeing. I agree with that, and that's... I mean, just a couple days ago, that's how we won the fourth quarter against the Lakers, was running those actions to get Siakam switches and him just absolutely destroying Kyle Kuzma. Yeah, it's, (laughs) what, seven (laughs) for seven for 18 points? That was my favorite thing. My favorite thing, man. I love that. So, I... Nick Nurse is a really smart coach, and he's going to figure all of this stuff out. I understand why, you know, having Serge Ibaka and Kyle Lowry go down kind of set the team for a loop because it's probably not something you prepare for is when you have a limited rotation suddenly losing two of your top six guys in the same game. That's a hard adjustment to make, but I do believe Nick Nurse will find these adjustments and I believe Pascal Siakam will also, you know, figure out how to expand his game to attack the defenses that he's seeing now. Because, I mean, you look at the expansions he made from this year to last year, a lot of it was him taking how he was defended in the playoffs and learning new things in order to make him harder to defend in those ways. And I think that's how Pascal attacks the game and how he attacks his own development, is to say, this is what teams want to do against me, Now I'm going to try to make that less of an option, and I'm confident in saying that he'll continue to do that. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that Nick Nurse, as a coach, is one of the best at recalibrating and adjusting league-wide. And honestly, even though Siakam hasn't had really great adjustments the last couple games, just in the history of seeing him play against top-flight defenders, I think he's been one of the most impressive players I've seen at adjusting course and figuring out a way to score against guys that that present difficulties. So I think there's a lot of room for optimism as well. Yeah, I'm I'm confident in these Raptors. And I think, you know, you never want to wish injuries on guys, but I think between 
Pascal having to adapt his offensive game a little bit more, Fred having to learn to be a little bit more regularly dominant, and the bench guys learning to adapt to being asked a little bit more of them, that may pay dividends down the line this season too as the team gets healthy. So I think as much as you wouldn't wish the injuries, the Raptors might be able to use this to their advantage once Lowry and Ibaka get back. Yeah, I agree with that. They got to grow in ways that they probably didn't foresee, at least this early, if at all. And that's that's definitely a boon to them, especially if Lowry and Ibaka don't see long-term effects throughout the year from their injuries and are able to come back healthy. The Raptors should be in prime position to start catching up to the Celtics, who have had the easiest schedule imaginable to this date. So hopefully and, that happens soon. And they just took a really tough loss the other night that you really hate to see. <laughs> you hate to see it. <laughs> okay, so listener, you're going to hear an ad right away, and then Anthony and I will be back. Here's the scenario. You're injured in a collision, and your insurance company is denying your claim. It happens far too often. If it happens to you, call me, Brian Goldfinger of Goldfinger Personal Injury Law. My team and I work for people just like you. We don't accept cases on behalf of insurance companies, so you and your family can make sure that you're in good hands. Visit goldfingerlaw.com and get us working for you. And welcome back. This is the Rappers Weekly Podcast. I'm Ro Sampson Folk and still joined, ready to answer some Twitter questions. I'm with Anthony Doyle. Ready to go, man? I'm ready. All right. So, Pierre Larrabee, at Pierre underscore Larrabee. What would it take for the Raptors to get Kevin Love from Cleveland? Would it make sense to trade Boucher Davis and a first-round pick? I'll swing this to you. I'm going to go ahead and say I would almost bet it's not going to happen because Kevin Love's contract runs into 2021. And I I think... like. I'm not just going to say it's it's Giannis, like has been the rumor going around, but I do think the Raptors have built this team to bring in a big free agent in 2021, and I think that's a major focal point right now for Masai and Bobby Webster. And I would say if you're looking at trades for the Raptors, what you're probably looking for is things that they can do that don't impact that cap space, because I unless they're bringing in a player who makes them a contender immediately. And I don't know that Kevin Love does that given what it would cost to bring him in. I don't think they make that deal. So I love Kevin Love, but he's also, I don't think he solves enough of what this Raptors team needs by himself to vault them into that top tier conversation. So I wouldn't say that's a trade I think the Raptors would make. And I also think if you're talking to Cleveland right now, you're probably having to give up a higher tier young guy and some future first round picks to get that because they're they're kind of at that front end of a rebuild. So what you'd be looking at, in my estimation, would be we would have to be talking about probably moving OG Ananobi, which I don't think the Raptors would want to do either. And I don't think most Raptors fans would want to do that. Yeah, I agree with you. Not only does Kevin Love not fit, I guess, the idealized version of the future that you and I have for the Raptors, and I think is probably the version that Bobby Webster and Masai Ujiri have for the Raptors because of the cap space. But also, I think it's pretty clear 
that the two three position is where the Raptors would need to upgrade if they're trying to get to a certain place this year. If they're going to say like, hey, we're going to win it all, having the quartet of Kevin Love, Serge Ibaka, Marcus All, and Pascal Siakam would be great, but it's not as great if you're in the playoffs and you have Norman Powell and OG Ananobi and maybe another guy sneaks in, Matt Thomas occasionally, one of Malcolm Miller, Stanley Johnson, that's the area of need. And I, I really like Kevin Love's game as well. I, I also like him as a guy, but it's uh, I don't think that's the fit. And I do think that Cleveland is, even though they're not a super great team or anything, they're operating from a position where they can ask for a lot if they want to. And uh, I don't think the Raptors would be willing to pay for that because the Raptors are shrewd when when making trades which is a good thing and yeah i uh, i agree with you on that I, I think if you're looking at a raptors trade you're looking at a ball handling shot creator is what they need to add <laughs> yeah well you have fred playing 40 minutes a game and kyle and fred even when both are healthy playing 38 minutes a game i think that's clearly the the need and especially when marcus all and serge Ibaka are only playing 24 minutes a game Trading for Kevin Love, while Kevin Love, I think, is a great player and has a super great skill set, I just don't think that makes sense for the Raptors. The next question is from Brian Jackson. Just for the fun of it, could you muse about the Raptors trading to get DeMar back from the Spurs or signing him this offseason? How interesting. I'll, I'll swing this one to you, Anthony. What do you think? I... See, I just went and said a whole bunch of nice things about Tabar in the previous segment, <laughs> and now this is going to make me look bad. Um, I really appreciate Tamar DeRozan for everything he did for the Raptors. However, I during his time with the Raptors, I did a lot of work, on, background work on how do guys with his offensive profile age, because Demar creates his shots in a way that is somewhat rare in the modern NBA. He doesn't take a lot of threes. He relies on getting a large number of free throws. And the uniqueness of that kind of made me wonder, like, what's the historical context for guys like that as they get older? And so what I found is there are only three guys in NBA history who kind of have a similar profile in how they create their offense to DeMar DeRozan who have kept their offensive efficiency up into their 30s. And those three players are Allen Iverson, Dwayne Wade, and Michael Jordan. And those three players are all kind of outliers in terms of how good they were. And so that always made me a little bit nervous about how DeMar was going to hit his 30s because so much of what he does that helps a team is tied up in his ability to create offense with the ball in his own hands. If he loses a little bit of that, he becomes a much tougher player to build around. And so I would already be apprehensive because of that, but then I would also look at like what the Raptors want to do right now is they want to bring in guys who complement Fred Van Vliet and Pascal Siakam and OG Ananobi and free agent X, who the Raptors seem to want to bring in. I'm not going to name names, but we all know who comes to mind when we say that. And I think... Pascal Siakam's a guy who you want the ball in his hands. Fred Van Vliet is becoming more and more a guy who you want the ball in his hands. So what the Raptors want to bring in is guys who don't need the ball in their hands, who can help those players have more space to work with. 
And I don't think DeMar does that either. So as much as I appreciate DeMar, I don't personally think he's a good fit for the Raptors going forward. If they were thinking that they want to win 55 games this year, even with Lowry and Ibaka out, and they wanted DeMar to carry long stretches of the offense, maybe, but I don't think that makes sense for the future, and I don't think it makes sense for this season. And I, I love DeMar, but like you said, having comparisons of Allen Iverson, Dwayne Wade, and Michael Jordan, while usually a good thing, in this case, actually makes his game seem very outdated and makes it seem like it's not actually built to last. And especially since even like a 30, 31-year-old Allen Iverson, I don't think this version of the Raptors team would trade for a 30 or 31-year-old Allen Iverson back then because it just wouldn't fit with this team. Dwayne Wade, Michael Jordan, both top flight Hall of Famers. Of course, Michael Jordan is considered the greatest basketball player of all time. Those guys, of course, but it's clear DeMar isn't at that level. Both Michael Jordan and Dwayne Wade had lightning quick first steps, something DeMar has never had. And DeMar has learned to play within his athletic limitations. And those guys, they had to learn to to grow around that. But it's also, it's just, DeMar does not bring as much as what the Raptors need, especially since... It's, it just seems like the things he's doing for this year, this is maybe the first year we've seen that he hasn't improved in a summer. And especially he's, when you see other players improving so fast, especially like a Pascal Siakam. It, yeah, DeMar looks like he, he has maybe lost a half of a step this season, and that that sucks to see, but there's a good chance that if he has, he's not getting that back as he ages at this point. And, all due respect for everything he did for the Raptors. One of the greatest players the franchise has ever had and did as much as almost anybody else for the Raptors. I think we're just going to have to appreciate that and let that be his legacy as a Raptor. Mm-hmm. And one last thing. If DeMar was thinking about his future, was thinking about his fit on the next team, and was thinking about how he fits into the league going forward, that three-point shot, would be going up a lot more often, whether it's in practice or during games or both. It just, that has to come. As you age, that has to come. And it hasn't come yet, which means that DeMar's viability on a long list of teams has has gone away. You have to be able to shoot the three, especially as your athleticism is about to leave you. And even Jason Kidd ended up on, what is it, the top 10 of three-pointers three made because that was something he worked at, that was something he incorporated and seeing DeMar turn that progression of his game away while guys like A. Pascal Siakam are, are working that in, even though they're bigger players, and he, Pascal Siakam, the need for him to have a three-point shot wasn't as necessary as a guy like DeMar. Everybody's been clamoring for it for so long. So DeMar another, has kind of—sorry, go ahead. Another former Raptor, Vince Carter, is kind of the, the model for how a ball-dominant wing should age if he wants to keep— in the league for a long time because, you know, Vince did exactly what you said. He expanded his three-point shot. And then the other thing Vince did is he really embraced the idea of being a mentor and being a locker room presence. And DeMar's always been good in that area, but that's that to a large extent became, a you know, who Vince is. He's a guy who makes, he's there to help the young guys grow in their career. And that's, I don't know if DeMar is ready for that move to, in his career. Right, and also maybe the most important part, 
Vince, for the last few years, hasn't made a lot of money. And the Raptors, and I think Raptors fans would appreciate hearing this, the Raptors are trying to win a championship. And Vince Carter, when he was making a lot of money, did not win a championship. And if you pay DeMar DeRozan a lot of money, your team is probably not going to win a championship. He's my favorite player of all time, but that's the reality of the situation. And I think that's probably the best place to leave it. And while also saying that he is one of the most important figureheads in Raptors history. How do you feel about that, Anthony? I I think we both kind of came to... We're at the same place on this one. Yeah. The uh, Another Twitter question from Aaron K 55 Assuming that at some point the Raptors are completely healthy, big assumption, and given the play of the new bench mob, does Nurse have one starting lineup, or should he slash will he favor matching up with opponents? I think we're going to see a static starting lineup this year as long as we're healthy. I think it's going to be the Lowry, Van Vliet, OG, Pascal, Mark group. And I don't really see a strong case for going away from that as the the starters because they fit so well. And as we saw last year in the playoffs, if you can win the starter versus starter minutes, that carries you a long way. So I, I expect you'll see that as the starting lineup. I think what you'll see if these bench guys can keep playing well is you'll see the Raptors play much more fluid lineups in sort of the end of the first quarter, beginning of the second quarter, end of the third quarter, beginning of the fourth quarter minutes. And you might see some fluidity in closing lineups, but I wouldn't expect the starting lineup to be anything different than that group. Yeah. If Marcus Gasol's offense truly never returns to a certain level, which I expect it will, there's been tons of players who have worked themselves back to, I don't want to say in shape, but just to a level of comfortability within an offense within their own game throughout the year. Even a guy like Eric Gordon is known for having horrible starts to the season. Marcus All, he's had a bit of a start that is a little bit disappointing offensively, but for the most part has been very good defensively, and he's always been a great guy who boxes out and helps out on the defensive glass. So there's been great aspects to his game, but if it truly never comes back on the offensive end and he's still shooting... 37 40% at the rim this year and Ibaka still remains as hot as he was before he's injured maybe something changes there but even then I'm not so sure nurse seems to like that that lineup that you uh, that you laid out there Anthony and so and, and, yeah and as as much as we've all been critical of Marcus's offensive start to the season I mean this summer playing for Spain he did score 33 in a game that was I wrote this huge feature breaking down the similarities between the Raptors offense if they used him the way Spain used them. Talking about Scariolo talking about it. And then they just they haven't done any of that yet. So I'm I'm waiting on that. Because I thought I was gonna be like, Yes, this is a great <laughs> predictive piece for the year. And it has not borne any fruit so far. Disappointing. I, I think he'll come along. I you know, he's he's not going to ever be the same player he was at his peak. But Kyle Lowry, when he gets back, he is so good at putting other players in a position to succeed. I can't help but think he's going to find a way to get Mark rolling at some point this season. Yeah, and I, I was talking about this with my friend Beto when he was asking me about why Mark struggles at the rim and why he was so good at the rim in FIBA. And I'm going to posit something here, and I, I wonder if you agree that the FIBA 
play around the rim is a lot more physical, but not as long and not as quick, which actually does benefit Marcus Hall's game. Mark, if they're playing really physical, there seems to be a level of comfortability that he has finishing over a physical defender. Whereas the NBA, it's less physical and the length is more, it's the, the length interrupts your shot a lot more often than pushing you away from the basket does. And we've seen Marcus Gasol can roll and rumble down to the basket in the NBA. It's just the length is changing the, the trajectory of his shot a little bit. And I think he's adjusting to it that way, that the FIBA game, while more physical, is not as dominant in air as the NBA game. And it's just Mark getting used to that because he was great against physical matchups in, in the FIBA World Cup, of course. What do you think about that? Am I off there? Is no, that I, a factor at all? I, I agree with that. I definitely think that's part of it. I mean, you look at the Philadelphia series when he had his best playoff series last year, and it was that type of physical ball that really, really <laughs> benefits his game. But I also think Mark kind of puts himself last. And so kind of like when he came into the Raptors last year at the trade deadline, he took a while to get rolling because I think what Mark, the way he looks at the game is he says, I need to make sure everybody else is comfortable with me and then I'll worry about what I'm doing. And I also think that's sort of what he's doing this season is he's saying, you know, we got to get Pascal rolling. We got to get OG rolling. We got to get Fred rolling. And then I'll worry about me. And I think it would benefit the Raptors sometimes for him to be a little bit more selfish. But I also don't think that's who Mark is. Yeah. And just as a heads up listeners and people who wrote in, I think we just answered this question from CQ. What's with all the hate towards Marc Gasol? The man has been going all year at a high level. No other player in the league has accomplished what Gasol has done this past year. The man won an NBA championship and then a world championship. Give the champ a break. Uh, yeah, we're we're trying to. We're we're throwing him some some compliments now, and uh, so I think we've answered that question. And there's also from Jake at underscore God buckets underscore said 2016-17 Demar Derozan versus 2019-20 Pascal Siakam. Who is better? I think we've answered that as well. So um, one last. Or sorry, a couple more questions. And uh, how do you feel about transitioning to those now, Anthony? Yeah, no, I'm good. Let's go ahead. From Matt Jenkinson, at Matt Jenkinson 85, do you see FVV staying with the Raptors long term? What kind of contract extension is he worth to the Raptors? I imagine this question will be asked on most podcasts going forward. And uh, what what do you think, Anthony? I... I have a hard time with this one right now because so much of it depends on how he sustains this season. But you are also looking at a guy who just got finals MVP votes and obviously was a huge part of a championship team. He's the same age as, uh, he's basically the same age as Pascal Siakam, which we tend to forget. I would like the Raptors to bring him back on something like a four-year contract with an average value of, somewhere in the 18 to 20 million range would be where I would be really happy with them bringing him back. If he continues at the level he's been at the last, you know, four or five games, it could obviously go higher than that. But also, you know, the Raptors kept Fred cheaper than we expected the last time around when he hit free agency. Point guards aren't really getting paid a whole lot in the current NBA, not 
unless they're superstar point guards. And as much as I love Fred, I don't think he's going to be that at any point in his career. So I think that's probably what I would look at the Raptors keeping him for. And I, as long as they can keep him in that range, they can do that and still maintain that max cap slot going forward. That seems to be important to the organization. If he starts to get to get, if Fred's next contract starts to get too much more expensive than that, that obviously gets complicated. Yeah, I agree with that pretty much wholeheartedly. And I think the only way Fred Van Vliet transcends to that level of stardom is, A, he has to shoot much better at the rim. And that's I understand why it's difficult for him. I totally get it. Like, even Marcus Gasol is shooting 40% at the rim. It's hard to shoot at the rim in the NBA. There's a lot of contests there. And so either that needs to happen at a way higher rate. Guys like Victor Oladipo and Kyle Lowry... They shot bad at the rim for a short part of their careers, learned how to work around it. Obviously, Oladipo incorporating the three-point jumper to to open up more space for him, and Lowry doing that as well, but being more of a outfoxing and out-timing the help side defense. So Van Vliet needs to transcend that part of his game or basically needs to start hitting threes at not a curry rate, but at a very, very high rate, like he's already doing, and he's extended his range, but it needs to become prolific. And those are the only ways I see for him to get really, really great, and those are both huge developments in this game, which I hope happen, of course, but I think I'm in the same boat as you. Yeah, I think you're looking at something around the lines of what Malcolm Brogdon got last year. You know, similar player. He's a combo guard. Brogdon scored 15 per game last year. Um, on really good shooting numbers, and what he got with Indiana was four million eighty-five, or I'm four years eighty-five million, and I yeah. and I think that's probably comparable to where Fred's going to be next summer. Yeah, Brogdon was fifty forty ninety, right? Uh yes, Brogdon was. I'm just looking at that. yeah, last year he was a fifty forty ninety guy, and the second best player in the Milwaukee and Raptors series. Man, I can't believe they let him go. Seems silly. Seems silly. I'm not going to harp on it, but yeah, kind of crazy. Them choosing to pay Bledsoe over Brogdon is probably a decision they're going to end up looking back on. I think they're already looking. Like, as soon as they are in the playoffs in that series, they're probably like, oh my god. this!" They knew then that playing Bledsoe, and now that they don't have the money that they want for Brogdon, is, it looms large for sure. And uh, yeah, one last question. This one from Christopher at Design Mojo. Are the high minutes for Siakam, FVV, and even Lowry when back sustainable over the year? You figure we need to ride those guys hard for any success. This seems like a fairly easy question, but I'll swing it to you. Are they, is it sustainable? No. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think so either. Is it, it it's something you understand why the Raptors were doing to start the season. They, you know, Nick Nurse obviously wasn't happy that his end of the bench guys were coming along to where he wanted them to be at the start of the season. And he made that very clear. He called them out before the season even started. And so obviously that was what contributed to him deciding that he was going to have a small rotation to start the season. The injuries happened. He's opened up the rotation now, as those guys come back, as you know, Lowry, we should be getting the update on him next week. I think once we yeah. get th- once we get there, 
now he's there is some comfort with Rondé. There is some comfort with Terrence Davis, who has been phenomenal, and Chris Boucher and Matt Thomas, and those guys have kind of found a little bit of a role for each of them on the team. That lets Nurse open up the rotation a little bit more, should let those minutes come down. But no, I would not say that that's sustainable at all. And in fact, I would say it's a very bad idea to keep their minutes where it's been. Yeah, Terrence Davis's progression looms very large for the Raptors season. And I think you had mentioned on Twitter, well, lots of people have mentioned on Twitter, but I believe I saw you mentioning that his reads are coming along at a very high rate, which is a good thing because the Raptors are asking him to handle the ball and make reads. Even though he's been good playing off ball so far this year, the real progression, at least for this specific year, is that if he can handle the ball, run through pick and roll, run through you know those little um, side pick and rolls, pin downs, things like that, make the proper reads, that's really big for the Raptors and their offense. And that's that's where the difference will be made, I think. Yeah, what I was seeing was in the in the preseason and in the first couple games of the season, when he would run a pick and roll, he was seeing the first read and the second read for passes, but he wasn't he was making very simple reads. And then in the last couple games, he's starting to see the whole floor. And that's a big deal for your lead guard is when they when they start to see, you know, not just the guy who's rolling for me and the first outlet, but you start to see also, okay, who's in the dunker spot? Who, you know, what is what pass can I make where that guy can make another play? And he's starting to see that whole picture. And it's going to be a long way until he fully understands and is making the correct read all the time. But just starting down that road is a big step for a young guard. Yeah, especially an undrafted guard. Another gem, seemingly, from Masai Ujiri. I, I, I don't know what you say about the Raptors scouting and development at this point. Is They're pulling more talent out of the draft than some teams are with multiple first-round picks what I would say about their scouting and development right now, Anthony, is that they should be a farm team. <laughs> for oh, man. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, Sorry. That I was, had to do it. That was a long night on Twitter. Yeah, I man, you have... For somebody who I find just more, more than agreeable, more, more like so often, I don't know how... It's like there will be so many tweets echoing your sentiment, but for some reason, you're the guy who gets quote tweeted. I don't understand it. Do, do you understand why? I, I don't really get it. Um, maybe it's just because I tweet a lot. And Could be. I'm active. I, I don't really know. That particular conversation, I under, you know, Chris Herring and I had a conversation about his initial tweet, and I understood the point that he was trying to make. I didn't think it was very well worded, and so I took objection a little bit. And maybe I didn't need to take objection as strongly as I should, as strongly as I did when he was really just complimenting the Raptors' development. It was a difference of understanding, is how I would phrase it at this point. Yeah. Either way, it was. Uh, I logged on to Twitter. I was like, Chris Herring, Anthony. I read both of these guys. Let's see. And I was like, Oh no. <laughs> and even when I logged on and it was the Kevin Durant thing, I was like, Anthony, you are. You have an uncanny ability to get responses from people that I don't usually see responses from. With fairly, I think they're not bombastic. That that is the part that confuses me. 
is that they there's so much worse out there and i don't find that you word your uh responses poorly but it elicits responses which is yeah it's it's a cool I, thing though definitely i'm not sure whether it's a blessing or a curse yeah who's who's to say right because you have long nights on twitter but also you you had a conversation somewhat with uh kevin durant so that's that's good you know yeah and i i would my personal perspective is that nba twitter a lot of people complain about it but if you put the time in and you develop the relationships, you can have a lot of really good basketball conversations on Twitter. And there are a lot of really smart people who are willing to have those conversations with you. And sometimes that requires going through some, some, some parts of it that are less fun, but you know, there are benefits to it. If you put, if you put the work in for every, for every Ari Abraham, there's like 10 great guys to talk to basketball about. But there's still the Ari Abrahams of the world, basically. Of course, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I feel like that's a great place to end it. Before we get out of here, Anthony, thank you very much for coming on. But do you have anything that you'd like to recommend or shout out? A book recommendation, your Twitter, maybe something you're writing coming up, anything really? Um, I don't have anything specific myself coming up. I'm doing some... I'm always doing game coverage at Raptors Republic. I'm always on Twitter during the games. Um, Boy, what have I been reading recently? I mean, not basketball-related, but I've been reading through um, the prequel trilogy on the Malazan Book of the Fallen, which is my favorite series of books of all time um, that Steven Erickson has been putting out. And I always recommend those books to everybody. But... uh, I haven't really been specifically reading anything aside from trying to keep up with the basketball world in the last couple of weeks. Just there's so much good stuff being put up out there that keeping up takes up a lot of time. Yeah, there's the amount of great content out there is kind of it's ridiculous a little bit, especially if you do have the good falls on NBA Twitter and you find that all the good stuff is being funneled to you. How do you turn down a, a great premise and a great writer? You just kind of have to dive into it. It's, I mean, it's for all of the talk that's on Twitter this morning about NBA television ratings being down. I can't help but personally feel like we're in a little bit of a golden age of basketball. There are great games every night. There are really smart people writing about them. You have to dive in and just enjoy it, and you can't focus too much on trying to look at how does this impact the league going forward. Just watch the games. They're fun. Yeah. I mean, Markel Fultz had a great game against, uh, who was it last night? Who did they play? Oh, my God. They just <laughs> uh, beat 125-121. Who did they play? Washington. Washington. There we go. Okay, well, it's Washington, so that's something that, that's probably notable. Washington has been fun this season. Like, as bad as they are, they have had some really entertaining games. And Danny Green threw down a big dunk last night. He did. My God. That he came in from the right wing, got it <laughs> off a missed LeBron three. It was, it was pretty good. I didn't know Danny Green could do that, and I watched every minute of him last year. Yeah, it's... Uh, it, man, I didn't think he had it either, but he skied for it. It was like, I'm sure you remember C.J. Miles... He, yes. when it was the bench bump, he had a really big putback dunk once. And everyone's like, what the hell just happened? It's it's always those shooters who 
they're still NBA players, so they probably still have like a 36-inch vertical at the very least who, if they get their steps right, they can sky in for one. And yeah, Danny Green um, had one. I know we're getting close to the end here, but that reminds me when I was in Lethbridge, I uh, was at a basketball tournament and one of the guys who was there had been on the, who was there as a coach, had been on the Canadian national team when Steve Nash was coming up. And we were having a conversation about, you know, his experiences with Steve Nash before everybody knew who he was. And he said that one of his first times at the Canadian national team camp Steve Nash was one of the most athletic guys on the team. (laughs) Yeah. And he said that, you know, people who only watched Steve Nash towards the end of his NBA career would have been blown away by how athletic he once was. And it, it just, you know, we watch them play against NBA. We watch NBA players play against other NBA players. We kind of lose context of the fact that the least athletic guy in the NBA is still probably one of the most athletic people you'll ever see. Yeah, like if you watch even Brian Scalabrini's jab step shakes 98% of pickup ball like ball players. Like he, there's just the how tight they are with the ball, the fluidity of the motion even for the least athletic player in the league is just it's so astounding. And yeah, like Steve Nash it maybe on a national team, he still shouldn't be one of the most athletic guys. That <laughs> probably speaks to where the Canadian national team was at that point. But relative to if I'm playing basketball and an NBA level player comes out and like starts playing, like even I used to play with there's the the Saskatoon, I believe they're the Rattlers. I've played with quite a few guys who played on that team in the Canadian Basketball League. And they won this year, which is really cool. But I play pickup with a lot of those guys all the time, and they're they're so athletic compared to guys who don't play any type of professional basketball. And it's just the things they're able to do that just so fast, like fast twitch muscles on a level, just the jab step, the in and out dribble, everything shakes you out of your shoes. And you yeah, and those are guys who play in the Canadian Basketball League not the NBA. So, the, yeah, the difference is astounding. Basically, NBA players are athletic, I think, is where we've ended up on this. Very <laughs> athletic. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on, Samson. Yeah, yeah, of course. I've uh, I've genuinely enjoyed this conversation very much. I feel like we there's a very wide berth of things that were covered, but uh, I'm very happy with where we got to. Yeah, I always enjoy coming on and uh, always enjoy getting the opportunity to talk basketball, you know, living yeah. up, living up here, there's a small basketball community. So I always enjoy getting the chance to come on the podcast and chat. Perfect. Well, Anthony, we'll, we'll bid you adieu. Thank you very much for coming on. And to the listeners, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. This was a long one, but filled with uh, great talking points. And whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night, Have a blessed day and goodbye. When you're a pro, your reputation is built and proven over time. That's why the Home Depot carries Loctite PL Premium Max construction adhesive, the strongest on the market. It stays 100% solid after curing. It won't develop air pockets. And like your reputation, it holds up over time. Right now, get 12 or more for the bulk price of only $8.53 each. Loctite PL Premium Max at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. 
Minimum purchase required, U.S. only. There's no place like home for the holidays or homedepot.com for holiday decor with Black Friday prices inside and out. Like artificial Christmas trees starting at just $39.98 or outside lights and playful inflatables to bring joy to the neighborhood. Order holiday decor online and you'll even get free delivery. Holiday decorating improved with an assortment of holiday decor plus free online delivery from homedepot.com. How doers get more done while supplies last.